Hello everyone and welcome back to Twists and Tales. On this episode, we are all going to be taking turns telling a different scary story we have found on the internet. And we will be reading them to you, our lovely listeners. Our storytellers today are myself, Sam. And me, Chris. And me, Jake. So let's not waste any time, dear listeners, and get yourselves cozy with a nice blanket and get comfortable and let's all get spooked. Let's get some spooks on. Okay, I have a short-ish story um, from I literally just typed in scary stories in my Google browser and this came up. Um, It is titled, It's Your Turn. A few years ago, I moved into a one-bedroom apartment in Melbourne, Australia. I said that right, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was my first time living on my own. The apartment block had been built in the 1930s. I'd been there for a few months when I came home from work one day and went into the bathroom. I saw something strange. A wooden board, which had covered a hole in the ceiling that led, that led to a small attic space lay fractured in two pieces on the ground. I examined the pieces. The board was an inch thick, and it would have taken Bruce Lee to break it. I thought the landlord had sent someone to work in the attic. I was frozen, stiff with fear. Someone is up there for sure, I thought. I emailed the pictures to the landlord, asking if anyone had been there, with an undertone of annoyance, since she hadn't warned me. Her reply said, please call me as soon as you are able to. I called, and she explained that her last two tenants had said the same thing had happened. She promised to replace the board, and she did. A month later, I woke up up one night around 4 a.m. My body was covered in goosebumps. It felt like someone was rubbing his or her hands on me. Mm. Everything was silent, but then I heard a dragging sound coming from above my bed. It was as if someone was pulling a sack of potatoes. I froze convinced someone was up there. There's no way an animal could make that sound. After five minutes, I worked up the courage to turn on the light, arm myself with a cricket bat, and walk into the bathroom. That's when I saw... That's when I saw that the new board covering the hole was broken in two. I felt sick. The dragging sound had stopped, but I heard something else, whispering. The sound was clear and coming from the attic. It sounded like children's voices. And I could hear one sentence repeated over and over. It's your turn. Mm. It's your turn. I switched on every light in the apartment to make things feel normal. It was 5 a.m. and dark outside. I watched TV to try to unwind. Then a fuse blew. My pet bird, Dexter, whom, whom I kept in the kitchen, usually never made a sound at night. But he started squawking like he was being strangled. I never heard him make those sorts of noises. He was scaring me. I grabbed my car keys, ran out, and sat in my car and waited until the sun came up. When I saw people walking their dogs, this com- this comforted me enough to go back in. The front door was open, but I figured I might have forgotten to close it when I ran out. I went to the kitchen to check on Dexter, but he wasn't in his cage. I felt sick again. All my windows were closed, so I, I looked everywhere inside. When I walked to the bathroom, I heard s- splashing. Dexter was half drowned in the toilet. Aww. I took him out. Uh, washed him and, and dried him. I was so confused. At 8 a.m., I called the landlord and gave her 
um, a watered-down version of my knife. Oh, wow. You heard the whisper, whispering, too, she said. Mm-hmm. I stayed in the apartment for another 18 months. Mm-hmm. I heard the whispering a few on a few occasions and twice the board covering the whole ceiling with mood. Although I, lo- although I live elsewhere now, the landlord recently called me. She said She said that her new tenants had begged to speak with me about the stuff that's been going on there. Forget it. It's their problem now. <laughs> and so is the cycle of renting a place. Yeah, right? Sure, but I, 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 li- I, I liked it. Oh. I liked it when I, I read it. Because I, you know, I read it once through before. But yeah, I was like, ooh. Ooh. It's got some fun tension to it. Um, in the question of what would uh, you do in that situation, um, uh, uh, what do you? What would you guys do? Before I answer, I'd like to hear what your guys would do. Well, first off, if I'm living in Australia and there's a giant hole in any orifice, I'm not living there. No, how, fucking how, wildlife, right? I can you imagine one of those giant ass tarantulas? Coming through that hole. Nope. No. Yeah. I see any dark hole. I'm like, nah, nah. Right. I'm I good, home. Oh, I couldn't do it. Well, a, a lot of your homes are going to have an attic space or something like that, so. Yeah, but uh, if it keeps removing itself, I'm not even going to think supernatural. I'm going to like, that's a big fucking spider. That spider is pushing those nails back through the board to get in. I think, though, too, like, one of our podcasts we listen to is Scared to, de- scared to Death. Yeah. They talk about how when people don't move when something happens, they're if they can financially, they're they'd be Darrens. It depends on if uh they would be Darrens or not. You know what I mean? Because like if you can't financially move, like can't f- financially be able to just pick up and leave, then I I guess you're stuck. You'd be stuck there until you could, or your lease is up or whatever. I know, but eighteen months. <laughs> well, most leases are two years. I'll repeat. 18 months. I don't know. If it continued the whole time, I'd end up like getting earplugs or something. Yeah, some way to deal with it. The landlord was aware. Of course the landlords. Landlords are like the worst humans I've ever met. They're slumlords. (laughs) Man. This is actually, the landlord we have right now is probably one of the best ones I've had. One of the rarities. Yeah, right. It's very rare to get a good one. I can't agree much with like Maoist China, but I mean... Their move to kill all the Lauren Larges, I feel it's based. Yeah. <laughs> I. Um. So I disagree with him staying for another eighteen months. Uh-huh. Disagree with that. Disagree with him uh, arming himself with a cricket bat and going to see what's going on. I'm getting the fuck. That, out of that you know, house. I've seen it so many times. Honestly, like people, it's such a white person thing to do <laughs> yeah. to go investigate whatever's happening. Like, if it would have been a person of color, they'd have been like, nope, I'm not going, shut the door, I'm staying in here, I'm not doing anything, kind of thing. It's such a, it's such a white person thing to do, like, just like, it's a white woman's thing to, to do to save every animal, whether it's dangerous or not, kind of thing. Look at the pretty kitty. It really is. It's a mountain lion. Like, if you think about it, how many, uh, famous, like, ghost investigators are people of color? Besides, like, new stuff now. Like, before. Oh. You know what I mean? That's, that's a fair point. <laughs> the only one I could think of offhand is from the TAPS team. They had a couple Hispanic guys. Well, yeah. But, I mean, that's... But they were mo- I don't think they were really on the crew. I think, I I think, think they the, were, like... No, no, the two of them were lead investigators. Oh, I but guess I think, right. I think, um... 
semantics here, but they may have been half, like their dad was or their mom was. Or so, I don't know, who knows? We don't know, we're not the person. We're, I say, we're, we're not them. I don't know them personally. There is a new TV show that has, it's a group of black men that is on Discovery Plus or something like that. Huh. And what's it in the, something Brothers, isn't it? Paranormal Brothers or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. I want to watch it. So. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't, and then, but I am very happy that his bird was alive. And, <laughs> yeah, I um, was pretty worried for it. I bird. was too. And then, did, so are we just assuming that this, whatever it was, got the bird out of the cage and tried to drown it in the toilet? Presumably. The That's ghost children or whatever it may be. <laughs> if I had a bird and it randomly started making creepy ass fucking noises, I I'd be like, bird. <laughs> Like, I want one. My parents have a uh, cockatiel, cockatiel yeah. and he makes all kinds of noises, right? But if he started doing weird noises when I came over, you got to you got exercise, Rocky. Exercise him right now. <laughs> no, thank you. So there was that, and I'm the, it's your turn. For what? What is it my turn for? Exactly. Like, I was like, uh. Is it my, my turn to move out? It's my turn to get out. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Yeah. That was my story. Oh, it's a pretty good read. It's fun. Uh, I guess next on to me, and my pick for today is an old short story by Ambrose Bierce, and possibly the listeners might have actually had this assigned to him in like high school. It was the first time I ever read it was during my American Lit class, and it was initially published in 1890. It's not necessarily spooky. Um, it falls under some of my definitions for horror, so. <laughs> Does it build the dread? Oh, gosh. (laughs) A lot of tension? I don't know about dread. (laughs) But, um... It could be misconstrued as dread. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. (laughs) I don't have a Thesaurus on me right now, but... (laughs) Thesaurus? Bring out the Thesaurus. Uh, so yeah. I guess I'll get started. Okay. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back and his wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross timber above his head, and the slack fell to the levels of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the tier supporting the rails of the railway supplied a footing for him and his executioners. Two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support. That is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm, thrown straight across the chest. A formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred yards, then, curving, was lost to view. Doubtless, there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles, with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope between the bridge and fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line at parade rest. 
the butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against their right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. The lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels facing the banks of the stream might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of difference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about 35 years of age. He was a civilian, of one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitted frock coat. He wore a mustache and pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark and had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provisions for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside, and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and placed himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank which spanned three of the cross ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood, almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man would go down between two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged, he looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move. What a sluggish stream. He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water touched the gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift. All had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was sound which he could neither ignore nor understand. A sharp, distinct, metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby, it seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the trolling of a death knell. He awaited each new stroke with impatience, and he knew, not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer. The delays became maddening. With their greater frequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ear like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the Thicking, or the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. 
By diving, I could evade the bullets and, swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods, and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invader's farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashing in the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner, and like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of imperious nature, which it was unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with that gallant army, which had fought the disastrous campaign ending with the fall of Corinth and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies. The larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction, that opportunity felt would come as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in the aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake, if consistent with the character of a civilian who is at heart a soldier and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a gray-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Mrs. Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. Whilst he was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. The Yanks are repairing the railroads, said the man, and are getting ready for another advance. They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, and built a stockade on the northern bank. The Commandant has issued an order, which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains will be summarily hanged. I saw the order myself. How far is it to Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. About 30 miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post about half a mile out on the railroad and a single sentinel at this end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. It was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It is now dry and would burn like tinder. The lady had now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was, in fact, a federal scout. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness, and was at one already dead. From this state, he was awakened, ages later, it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agony seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid curiosity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. 
the intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud of which he was now merely the fiery heart. Without material substance, he swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation like a vast pendulum. Then all at once, with a terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken, and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of the river, the idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until he was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface. Knew with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot. That is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler, without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent! What superhuman strength! Ah, um, that was a fine endeavor. Bravo! The cord fell away, his arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each, on each side of the growing light. He watched them with a new interest, as first one, then the other, poured upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations re resembling those of a water snake. Put it back, put it back, he thought. He shouted these words in his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly. His brain was on fire. His heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out of his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an unsupported anguish, and his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously, with quick downward strokes forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draft of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were, indeed, preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon him, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors and all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs like oars which had lifted their boat, all these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface facing down the stream. In a moment, the visible world seemed to wheel slowly around himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, 
the captain and the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with spray. He heard a second report, and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a gray eye, and remembered having read that gray eyes were the keenest, and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter-swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half round. He was again looking at the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice and a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawing, aspirated chant, the lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and pitilessly, with what an even calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured interval fell those cruel words. Company, attention, shoulder arms, ready, aim, fire! Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara. Yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley, and rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One large between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gra gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder, as he was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make that, man that martinet's error a second time. It is easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in explosion, which stirred the very river to its depths. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was crackling and smashing the branches of the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly, he felt himself whirled around and around, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forest, the now distant bridge, fort and men were all commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only, singular hor horizontal streaks of color. 
That was all he could see. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments, he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange rosette light shone through the spaces among their trunks, and the wind made their branches the music of Elonian harps. He had not wished to perfect his escape. He was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whiz and a rattle of grape shot along the branches high above the reed roused him from his dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the surrounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodman's road. He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall, he was fatigued, footsore, famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last he found a road which led in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point, like a diagram and a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the wood, shone great golden stars looking unfamiliar and grouped in a strange constellation. He was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which, once, twice, and again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it found horribly swollen. He knew it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted his untraveled avenue. He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking, for now he sees another scene. Perhaps he was merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, how beautiful she is. He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow from the back of his neck. A blinding white light flies, blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from the side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek, Owl Creek Bridge.
Yeah, I think that's like the first one of the like a twist ending like that in American literature. Yeah. It's like something we see often, but that's what stuck out the most when I first read it as a kid. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's uh, that current Sal Creek Bridge. Huh. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, so he's practically having a a bunch of out of body out of body experiences, like a life flashing before his eyes type thing. Yeah, that was always kind of the takeaway I had, or like. You know, the last synapse he's firing before yeah. he actually dies. Can you imagine, like, your life, or, like, you thinking you escaped and get to getting to your wife or husband or whatever, and then just nothing? Yeah, that was the end. Mm. The last miserable false vestige of hope <laughs> before yeah. it's all over. I wonder what those voices were. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's hard to say. It can be about anything. It could be the... Um, author's idea of perhaps there is some kind of afterlife that was sort of waiting in the uh, wings for him or maybe just bits of memory fragment because they didn't really have a very clear idea of neurology yeah. back then yeah. at all so uh, it's, it's hard to say hmm. I don't even know what you could do in that situation because not be a slave owner yeah <laughs> my thought on the, vo- the idea of the voices could be is is his brain is still processing what's going on around him as a swinging dead body. Mm-hmm. And it very well could have been the uh, soldiers that could have been murmuring and doing, you know, whatever. And his, you know, so his brain would be like, oh, they're, they're talking and some, I can hear them, but I don't know what they're saying type it of thing. Can't quite make sense of what's happening, yeah. so it's just kind of overlaying. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's another real good way to look into it. Huh. I'm just... Like it's it's a uh, it's uh, like an M Night Shyamalan twist in yeah. like eighteen ninety. It's what I, it's like something that's kind of tropey nowadays. Mm-hmm. You're all, you're dead the whole time. It yeah. was all a dream. Or... Oh, he was dead since the beginning. Yeah, right. <laughs> huh? I see dead people. <laughs> was that M Night Shyamalan? Uh, yeah, yeah. What uh, what was it called again? The Shining. The, the Sixth Sense. I was gonna say Shining. <laughs> The Shinnin. The Shinnin. What, you want to get sued? Mm. I also tried to do an accent for that, but I very quickly grew tired of I, it. You, you, opened, you opened with it, and I'm just like, yes, Jake, yes. <laughs> I could not maintain. You kind of slipped in and out of it, so it was fine. Yeah, I, I definitely did it for when they were like talking to each other to mm-hmm. try to make some of it. Uh, it was good. A plus. Woo! A good job, Jake. Jake. Think it's time for Samantha's story, maybe? Yes, my turn. So I got this one off of the No Sleep Reddit. It's by DreamEater096, uploaded about five days ago. The title is, You Just Had to Take Us Cave Diving. It'll be a great time. Get out of the house, you said. Now I'm never going to see you again. Ooh. Yeah, it's under houses, Haunted Houses and Grissom Gardens, which I don't know what cave diving has to do with Haunted Houses and Grissom Gardens. But maybe it's a haunted cave. Maybe I haven't read this, so I ha- I'm not prepared for words. Okay, ready? My father texted me about a week ago, saying he wanted a chance to hang out and tell me about something he found. My parents split up when we were young, and I only came back to Idaho from California a few months ago. I really never got to know him outside of being a little kid. Faint memories of happy meals and visits while I was at school. He seemed excited to be in his kid's life again, though. Oh, his kid's life again, though, and I figured, why not? It would be fun to get some memories with him. That being said, life happens. I started a new job at a gas station, 
rooming with a few friends, and going to school for photography made for little in the free time department. He seemed pretty insistent at the time. Said he may have found the discovery of the century. I was intrigued, so I clocked off work at 9 p.m. and drove over. The house on the north end was everything you'd expect in a nice neighborhood. Autumn leaves, covered lawns of beautiful cottages. It was a quiet little village hidden inside the hustle and bustle of downtown Boise. Joggers and college students walked freely even as it was getting dark. My dad's house was right across the street from a plaza full of coffee houses, bars, and restaurants. Life seemed like it was going pretty well. I knocked on the door and he let me inside with a hug. It did seem a little odd on both ends, I'm sure. He hadn't seen, I hadn't seen him since I was 12, yet we both were happy about the reunion. The house was full of computer parts and art books. It seemed my, jug, my juggling of hobbies was hereditary. The reason he brought me over, though, lay in his room. The wall across from his bed were covered in maps of varying sizes. Seismological charts and photos from Google Earth had thumbtacks all over. If I saw any red thread between them, I would have thought him mad. <laughs> okay, I know what you're thinking, and I'm not crazy, my dad clasped both his hands together, preparing his explanation. So as you know, I've been rock climbing and cave diving for the last few years. I didn't know you had, I didn't know that, but go on, I admitted, trying not to distract him. Well, we've been cave diving and rock climbing. You should try it, it's fun. So anyways, there's a national park right outside of Nampa called Craters of the Moon. Have you ever been? Never heard of it, I told him. I told the truth. Northern California, I could have told you anything there was to know. Idaho at the time, your guess is as good as mine. No problem. We'll start from the top. My father reeled himself in, taking a moment to organize his thoughts. Okay, where do we start? All right here. He pointed at a picture of stony caverns and began his explanation. So a long time ago, think thousands of years, there was a volcanic eruption in Idaho. Not so much from a volcano like you'd think. More like earth broken open like a cookie and vomited magma as far as the eye can see. Trees burned so bad the root system scorched holes in the earth. The earth turned black from the ash and molten rock. Pools of it burned giant divots in the earth. These missing chunks and the cave systems throughout are called craters of the moon. It's really freaky looking, unlike anything else on earth. NASA even performs mission there sometimes to replicate the environment in space. So all of that is a whole lot to say. It's a cool chunk of federal land full of caves. You follow? Big caves, cool rocks. I got you. I gave a thumbs up, nodding as he continued. My dad laughed at my response. Now, there hasn't been a volcanic eruption there in like 15,000 years. Despite this, there's a giant new cave out there that appeared out of nowhere. Overnight, there was a rumble in the earth. Some animals got out of dodge and all of a sudden a whole new entrance to the deep came to be not even a little one google maps has a picture i printed out and if you look at the entrance it's got to be like half an acre around it's massive no one's checked it out yet and i'd like to be the first it would make a fun father-daughter trip if you're in you with me i thought for a second and shrugged it wasn't my thing per se yet he seemed so excited and it did sound fun i'm down when do you want to go though my dad smiled handed me a folder of files Perfect. Here, these are the maps and details for where we're going. Phone service is crap out there, so I'll need you as a navigator. If we want to be the first in there, we'll have to move fast. Can you set out tomorrow morning? 
I had to admit, even I was excited. I'll make some phone calls, I told him, and we were on our way. I went back to my apartment, let my friends know where I would be, called in at work, and got some sleep. It was at the crack of dawn, I piled in a suburban, and we headed off. The trip there would have took only three hours, yet we stopped to get me sized for some climbing gear. Harnesses, dozens of carab car carabiners? Carabiners? Carabiners. Carabiners, there you go. Even a set of climbing boots. He really spared no expense. I offered to pay for it, and of course he, he, he declined. Consider it payment for coming with, he said. I shudder to think how much it all cost. Geared up, we hit the freeway. The I-85 was a long stretch dotted with small towns. Swaths of farmlands and plains lay between. Locals had a lot to say about how their town was getting bigger and not much of it was nice. Still, time came rolling and those patches of tall grass and weeds got smaller every year. Hours passed and we arrived. The earth turned from a dry brown to black. Rock formations sprinkled throughout the rice, tossed like through rock formation sprinkled throughout like rice tack tossed <laughs> like rice tossed by a giant hand neat little droppings of stones with patches of grass arrayed in piles as far as the eye could see even the trees sparse as they were had distinct distanced themselves in similar fashion it was as though it all floated on a sea of black silt otherworldly and yet so easy to traverse my dad four-wheeled it across with hardly a bump on the road eventually we parked at a campsite placed the ticket in the window so rangers wouldn't boot the vehicle and went i never even held a map before still i found north of the compass he gave me and looked the map over he waited patiently as i tried to gauge where it was we were going map says five miles west of here so that way i fixed my hair from the wind and pointed to where the w lay on the compass he congratulated me for figuring out so well, and we were off. More dirt, more stones. Caverns beckoned with small holes as wildlife booked it at the sound of our steps. A couple hours later, we'd arrived. A massive cave lay with mouth agape. Blocks of stone were scattered across as though ripped from the earth by sheer force. Darkness lay with its jaws inviting. Coming across, it ha I had to admit, it was all a little intimidating. Still, we came this far, and I'd not be called a chicken. With a DSLR camera I'd saved up for and bought back in high school, I followed my dad into the caverns, taking pictures along the way. It began with air both stiff and cold. The wall's sediment broke off in powdered chunks. Despite the dry cold outside, the air felt musty and even a little wet. It felt a little odd, yet going in was even stranger. The cold, dry wind from outside changed as we descended. Step by step, it got warmer instead of colder. More damp in the air, with a stink that smelled breathy like a dog in your face as you hold the treat bag. <laughs> After ten minutes of walking, I knelt down, wiping warm fog from my camera. You alright? My father stood close at hand. I was already pretty tired, yet he seemed built for the occasion, breath steady as could be. Still... Even he was shaking his cargo shirt, trying to force in a breeze. I have never been in a tunnel so warm. Wet, sure. There's mold, ravines, and the like, but those would be cold. Are you hot here in here too, Haley? I nodded, adjusting my ponytail. 
Even my glasses are fogging, let alone my camera. What do you think it is, though? What would make a cave so hot? Honestly, I'm not sure, he shrugged, peering deeper into the darkness. The other thing I'm noticing is the consistency of it. Look at the ceiling and walls. What do you notice? I don't know. I look a minute to have a look around with a torch. Nothing really. Exactly. My dad's voice held back wonder as he spoke. No bends. No point in which the walls get tighter and we had to crawl through. It's like one big smooth hole. Like a machine bored a tunnel right through here. It's the strangest thing. You're right. At that moment, something ticked in my chest. Some voice in the back of my head saying we need to go. I stuffed it down, wiping the sweat congealing on my brow. Still want to go down? The only thing I could think of for that is magma. My dad continued lost in his thoughts, stroking the stubble on his chin. I think that would make it dry in here, but if I'm right and we find it, that would be history in the making. Heck, you could even have some photos on the evening news if you use that camera. It may be a little dangerous, but you're a big girl now, so I'll leave it up to you. Do you want to keep going or head back? The intuition perked up again, though I shoved it aside. The excitement on my dad's face was palpable, and getting my pictures on the news would have been great for my career. I gathered my courage, strapped my bag tight with my camera slung around my neck. I gathered up my course and took the lead inwards. Let's go, I called back with a smile. That's the spirit. My father laughed, so we headed on. The deeper we went, it was even more wet and warm. I'll never forget the smile on your face when I turned around, flashing my light at you, standing in the dark behind me. I couldn't tell if it was pride you felt or just happiness in the moment. What we didn't expect, however, was that the walls lost their substance. The hard crags of stone became moist and pliable. Sticky strands of mucus stretched throughout the walls, and with every step, we took the smell. Foul and breathy and hot. It turns my stomach thinking about it now. We took a breath, hardly able to breathe in the cave's humidity. My glasses fogged all the more, and my blonde hair mottled? Molted? Mottled? Yeah, there you go. Into thick, dark strands. Our clothes stank, and I coughed from the smell of it all. We walked up to one of those cords of mucus hanging from the walls, and we saw it. Some deep red organism hung from the ceiling like a vampire bat in rest. It was bulbous, puffy, and swung in the breeze within that hole. I was about to ask why there was a breeze, yet the answer struck us both. The floor beneath us beneath us, violently tossed us upward on the soft pallet that we stood upon. A roar followed after, racking me with fear. The noise echoed off the walls, rattling my teeth as tears left my eyes from pain. My left ear is still blown out from it now, deaf forevermore. I didn't have to hear my father here to see my father screaming run. I tore past him terrified. My pack was wearing me down, making the sprint impossible. I threw it in the dark and kept on, a camera bouncing off my chest as it dangled around my neck. The cleats in my boots torn to the mire beneath us as my legs ached, squeezing all they could to push me on. I choked, I cried. Still, I carried on. The roar from whatever we had stirred shook the walls behind us. I thought we had awoken demons, some black pit of despair releasing its denizens behind me. The first words I heard, my right ear regaining sound, were the last you ever spoke. I'm sorry, Haley. My father's apology tore through the fear in my mind for that split second. 
questioning what it would be he could be sorry for. The situation? The fact we were in danger? It was then, with all his might, he shoved me forward. Tumbling, I tried to keep my balance, arms flailing as I drove into the floor. The soft pallet was gone. Hard rock burst my nose in blood, shattering my glasses, cutting my eyes and mouth. Tears of pain wept down my face as I turned around in horror to find the painful act saved my life. It was then I learned that it was not what we were running from, but what we were inside. A wall of pearl closed before me as he was lost in the dark behind them. The death screams of my father echoed, crushed in the molars to haunt me to this day. Wet popping rippled as bone gave beneath the crushing tons of the beast who devoured him. I screamed and sobbed, and it didn't mean a thing. You were dead, lost in the mouth of the most horrible thing I've ever seen. Its teeth pulled back. A giant mass of wriggling pink tore through the darkness, replacing that mouth with a giant eye. It stared at me in the darkness. An idiot demerged bef before an ant in its hill. I pulled back in the cave from whence it came, leaving an even, even bigger black hole behind. I crawled forth from those caverns. Battered and bloody, I drove his car to the nearest signal and called 911. I told the police every detail and was promptly sent to Intermountain Mental Health. Told by doctor and pill giver alike that I must have been sexually assaulted. My father was only murdered by some psycho and I made this all up to hide from the trauma. I watched my dad get eaten alive and no one would believe me. At least they won't admit it. I found out that since the incident, the land is off limits. No one's been near the place since it happened, guarded now by large men with larger guns. They couldn't watch the whole perimeter, though. It's been two years since that happened, and I'm not the same girl that he died saving. That smashed camera they confiscated now replaced with the 50 caliber sniper rifle. Climbing gear is now a pack with a dozen magazines of Teflon-coated rounds. It cost me every dollar I had. I'm going back to that hole and no one's going to stop me. If no one ever hears from me again, I'm making that thing pay for killing my dad. I promise you I'm coming and hell is coming with me. Hmm. I caught on to they were inside something when um, they were confused why it was getting um, human. human. Yeah. I was like, they are in something's insides. Yeah. <laughs> I was getting some major like episode five flashes, like right? when they're in the space slug. They mm. are in something's insides. And then you t mentioned like the the hanging duodenum or whatever it was actually. Yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah, they are for sure in something. Uh, for me, I thought maybe they were gonna like end up since I hadn't read it before that. For me, I thought they were gonna end up finding magma. That's why I was getting hot. But well, would have been a nicer ending. <laughs> yeah, than getting eaten alive. <laughs> There's a reason why I never want to go cave diving or anything like that. Well, some shit like that. One, I have claustrophobia to like I'm worried about going through spaces where I could possibly get out of. Yeah. That kind of thing. Second, you know what's down there? Have you seen Descendants? I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Descendant or whatever. Descend yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. No, thank you. Oof. Yeah. I would have listened to my gut reaction when I thought go back and went back. Yeah, that's what I would have done. <laughs> Agreed. Um, especially when you're seeing all this like really weird, not rock stuff mm -hmm. around. Like, huh? The floor's soft and it's really humid, and it smells like death. 
No. Right? Uh. Well, also, it smells like dog's breath. <laughs> especially when your father had mentioned that it's odd that there's no no bends, no crevices you gotta crawl through, nothing like that. It's a straight shot cave. That doesn't happen. It's so weird. It's like an integumentary system. I know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it'd be cool to explore a cave, but I would not like to the point where I had to like carry gear with me that I had to be able to get out. Yeah. Like maybe a 30 minute wander. Yeah. I'm with a, a wander, not an expedition. Right. <laughs> You'd like like a, a guided tour cave. Yeah, like where... a guided tour. Like uh, to Eastern Iowa where they have all those caves along there. I'd like to see those. Or like see a gem cave or something like that. You know, that kind of thing. But we, We've been able to do some like spelunking down in Missouri, but it's mostly like tourist traps and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And some of them look really cool, but yeah, no, that's as far as I want to go. I don't... <laughs> deep dark underground there's just like millions of tons of stuff that can come down on you mm-hmm. good. And say any give any given moment yeah and so what, there's things down you don't know what's down there bats you hate bats i do not like bats <laughs> <laughs> what so what do you think it was it's weird that it had an eye that's the thing that seemed well, really weird to me honestly and it morphed like it like she said like the it wasn't like it was a, like it turned and it was an eye. It was like the eye just kind of formed and it was there. Wow. Okay. I guess I, I misheard it because it sounded like like it had like pulled back or something and Let's see. like turned about or something. But the fact that it had an eye was weird because if if it's subterranean it and worm like, yeah, yeah seems very odd. Makes it all the scarier, honestly, because it's like I don't know a massive thing from another world. It says, a giant mass of wriggling pink tore through the darkness, replacing that mouth with a giant eye. So yeah, it depends on, that's, the way I'm imagining it is it's like, swerving about or something, or moving its mouth away. Oh, like kind of turning its head kind of thing? Yeah, that's the way I'm imagining it with that description. It's a giant reptile. With an eye. (laughs) Well, the way they were describing it, it's like, it looks like the moon, the, the, the like, it could be alien, or I wonder if it's, like, dragon. Like, it erupted, and it's been there, and it just recently opened up, so maybe something, like, the dragon woke up, made yeah, the like earth a, open up. Yeah, know. it's like a rain of fire dragon or something. Yeah. It's just been hanging out down here for the night. Okay. And like, maybe it can't move, because with the magma below that, it's keeping it warm. Yeah. So it can't go above, because Idaho is what? It could be kind of cold, maybe? During the winter, it could be. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That wasn't as spooky as I could have read, but that's still creepy. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. No complaints. Man, I had a hard time reading that. My brain did not want to read that. <laughs> yeah, it's but all right. Sh- she did end up doing the right thing, though. Fucking arm up and yeah. give her hell. She that's, went all Sarah Connor. <laughs> right? That's so government, though, to be like, oh, no, you are, you're crazy. Let's throw you in a mental institution. But let's block it off so nobody can go in there now and not make it suspicious at all. Can't let us dum dums know anything. God forbid. The SCP Foundation moved in, you know. Ugh. Ah, that reminds me. I gotta play more control. Mm. I gotta finish that one. Well, there you go. Let's it. <laughs> Man. Wouldn't it be crazy if the end of the game is just a giant maw comes out of nowhere and just swallows you up? That would be fantastic. <laughs> that would be pretty sweet. The end of the simulation, guys. This giant, the giant creature that's housing Earth or whatever the simulation is at, just 
It just gets dark out. You see teeth come down, and it just gets dark around it. <laughs> <laughs> and the chewing begins, and the screaming across the world starts. <laughs> It'd be like a cookie, because, like we've discussed earlier in, the, in this series, the earth is flat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're just sprinkles. Redacted. <laughs> we're just sprinkles on a cookie? Yeah. Uh, the, the, chips? The, the earth cookie, the flat earth cookie, and we are the... The sugary sprinkles. Hey. <laughs> I didn't say it was a good analogy. <laughs> the earth's the pizza and we're the toppings. Oh, we're the toppings? We're the toppings. Man, that's a bad pizza. There's a lot of bad topping. Mm, yeah, yeah. Anchovies. And Ew, gross. Pineapple. And pine- pineapple mushrooms, you know. Uh, how dare you? Shut up. <laughs> Shut up, Jake. Well, fuck you. For those pineapple pizza lovers, you have one person for you, the other against. No. That's it. That's right. Vote for me. Argue about it in the comments. <laughs> okay. I think it's the first time we've done a full episode this way, right? Wait, what, rating stories? Yeah. Each yeah. of us? Yeah. yeah. I, li- I, I like that. I hope everybody else liked it, too. Um, please follow the podcast. Follow Sup- us on Facebook. Facebook. Support us with listener support if you'd like. Rate and review helps us in the algorithm. Yes. Oh yeah, it all helps them. Sweet, sweet numbers, I guess. <laughs> sweet, sweet. And best, yeah. best part, it's free for you. Yes, yeah, free, for you. free across multiple platforms. Oh, lo- I'm discovering how many platforms there actually are that do podcasts. It's astounding. There's a lot. <laughs> it's astounding. But yeah, I'd like to thank everybody for listening today. And from us at Twist and Tales, bye. 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 <laughs>